0: Welcome to TopCast and to part two of my little series, Knowledge and Ignorance, based around the paper, or rather lecture as he calls it, On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance by Karl Popper. And I know I said this last week, but it's worth saying again, the quality of writing in Karl Popper's work, broadly speaking, is a cut above what you encounter with just about any other philosopher. I want to say every other philosopher. I've read a fair bit of philosophy. I read a lot of rubbish philosophy. People recommend stuff to me. They recommend books to me, and some of those books I've commented on, many of them, of late, haven't been that great. Not only in terms of substance, but in terms of style. Once you've read something like The Beginning of Infinity or The Fabric of Reality, you do tend to see other books in a pretty unfavourable light. But Popper holds up especially in terms of philosophy. Like when you read philosophy, generally it's rather dry. And as I say, and as I've said before, even modern philosophers, they tend to have this penchant, one might say, for philosophising in the abstract, for concocting thought experiments, for thinking about things that haven't actually ever happened in real life, the so-called trolley problems. You know, what if you raised a baby in a room where there was no stimuli except white walls? This kind of thing. And then they try and draw conclusions from the experiments that they've just made up inside of their head. This is a problem, and this creates a poverty of the substance. Now, I should just mention, of course, that someone like Einstein actually did think up thought experiments, but there's a crucial difference, a crucial difference. His conclusions could be tested against physical reality. And this is completely unlike so many of these trolley problem type things. Now, the reason I mention that is because Popper doesn't do this. Popper just goes straight to the issues, straight to what's happening in real life. He'll talk about historic ideas. He'll talk about the science. He'll talk about what some other philosopher said and then compare it to what's really going on in the world. So I'm up to part five, and part five conveniently contains a recapitulation of the previous four parts, so we don't have to go over them because Popper basically summarises what he's just said. So let's dive straight in and I'll pause along the way. And he says, quote, In examining the optimistic epistemology inherent in certain ideas of liberalism, I found a cluster of doctrines which, although often accepted implicitly, have not, to my knowledge, been explicitly discussed or even noticed by philosophers or historians, end quote so this is his introduction. Now, he's mentioned there optimistic epistemology, and what he's about to explain is what he has already explained in the previous four parts about this so-called optimistic epistemology. And for my listeners, if this is the first time you're coming to this, we're not talking about optimism in the style of David Deutsch. We're not talking about optimism of the sort where all evils are due to lack of knowledge, that problems are soluble, that kind of thing. This is different. This is... An optimistic epistemology where the optimism that's talked about is not entirely a virtue. It's an escape from a certain kind of authoritarian epistemology, but it brings with it certain liabilities, and he's about to explain what those are. So he's just said he's going to talk about this cluster of doctrines, which haven't been noticed before. He says, quote, The most fundamental of them is one which I have already mentioned, the doctrine that truth is manifest. The strangest of them is the conspiracy theory of ignorance, which is a curious outgrowth from the doctrine of manifest truth, end quote. So sorry for the stopping and starting, but this is this bears sort of repeating and emphasising. Remember that the doctrine of manifest truth is this idea that you can see the truth in some way, whether by empirical means, you just get it via your senses, or whether by the inerrant ability of your rational reasoning capacity, because you that can't err for whatever reason, <laughs> whether it's religious or you've got some other argument as to why your reason shouldn't err. Whatever the case, this is the doctrine of manifest truth, that truth just manifests itself and you can recognise it out there in the world. Now, that leads to a problem, and the problem is, why are people making mistakes? Why is there ignorance in the world? Why don't people agree all of this stuff? Well, there must be some conspiracy on this account. Someone, or some ones, some group, some nefarious actors in the world, the evil people, are keeping you from the truth. They're conspiring to keep you ignorant. That's the only possible way that you could be deceived, because your senses aren't going to deceive you, and your reason won't lead you astray. Well, okay, so this is what Popper is explaining. and He goes on to say, quote, By the doctrine that truth is manifest, I mean, you will recall... The optimistic view that truth, if put before us naked, is always recognisable as truth. Thus truth, if it does not reveal itself, has only to be unveiled or discovered. Once this is done, there is no need for further argument. We have been given eyes to see the truth and the natural light of reason to see it by. That's great. That's great. Don't just think that this is the error of the ancient and classic philosophers. Even today people tend to think that via our senses we just get knowledge of the world and the light of reason enables us to see what the truth is. Seeing is believing this kind of thing. So no interpretation is needed. Interpretation happens later, not before the senses come into providing you information. It's just you get raw information, raw data, and it's uncontroversial. We inherit this with, with, with phrases like evidence-based whatever it happens to be once you've got the evidence on your side it's incontrovertible there's no need for debate there's no need for interpreting the evidence there's no need to worry about how the evidence was collected any of that stuff it just is what it is on this view on this view you just need to apply your reason the rational people can do that the educated, the learned amongst us the intellectuals and academics They can inherently interpret the evidence for us. That's how we inherit it today. And there are modern thinkers who explain pretty much this idea. We'll come back to that. Popper goes on to say, This doctrine is at the heart of the teaching of both Descartes and Bacon. Descartes based his optimistic epistemology on the important theory of the veracitous day. What we clearly and distinctly see to be true must indeed be true, for otherwise God would be deceiving us. Thus the truthfulness of God must make truth manifest, End quote. As I say, you do an undergraduate degree or some subjects in philosophy, you will encounter Descartes. He's one of the big thinkers. And indeed, I find him a genius of a kind. But there are errors that he makes, and there are these clangers where you think, well, that's just a weak argument. And one of them is that when you have a clear and distinct idea that therefore it must be true. And why must it be true? Well, all he could come back on is, well, God exists and God is going to guarantee that what you clearly and distinctly think of as true must in fact be true. Now, consider his whole idea of method of doubt, that you doubt everything around you because you could always be deceived by the evil demon or you could be dreaming or any of a number of other ways in which in modern times we think about ways in which we might not be encountering reality as it is we might be in a simulation whatever your thought experiment happens to be what Descartes concluded is that you can do all the doubting that you like but something has to be doing the doubting and that something is you therefore you exist and that cannot be doubted okay because doubt exists something like that so he said that when you think you are, I think I am is a necessary truth. Sometimes people have interpreted this over the years, I think. Uh, uh, he might, perhaps he said it in one of his other writings, but it's been reinterpreted as I think therefore I am, which sounds like an argument. I think therefore I am. But, it, but Descartes never intended it to be an argument of that sort. He intended it to be a necessary truth that you could perceive. No argument required. You just clearly and distinctly perceive it. So, as far as I know, a listener might want to correct me, I don't think he ever actually said, I think, therefore, I am. I know in the meditations he said, I think, I am. And sometimes that, uh, I think, therefore, I am, is is shortened to be called the cogito, cogito ergo sum, which is Latin, I think, therefore, I am. But once again, I don't know that he ever actually wrote that. I think it was attributed to him. Could be wrong. Whatever the case, this is supposed to be the one thing that you can't doubt, that you exist. One of the most prominent intellectual podcasters of our age, Sam Harris thinks this. He says this whenever the topic comes up, essentially, that there's one thing that you can't doubt, and that's your own existence. But as I've argued before, I don't think that this is the case, because you can doubt a whole bunch of things. If you say, I think I am as a necessary truth, or I think therefore I am, or you know, doubt exists, whatever this is, you've got a string of characters there. I think, therefore I am. So are you saying this string of characters in English is labelling as necessarily true the concept behind that? You, if you say, I think, therefore I am, you're, you're assuming that I mean something, think means something, uh, am means something. All of these words necessarily you must be inerrant about. You must be absolutely certain that these things label necessary truths of some sort as well. You suddenly have a whole bunch of dominoes that begin to fall down, each of which is a necessary truth. In order for you to build up this, I think, therefore, I am necessary truth. So you're suddenly inerrant about a whole bunch of things. You you can't possibly be wrong. But you can be misconceived. You can just be mistaken about what you think. And by the way, it's pointless anyway. Like, who cares, really? (laughs) Why do you need this basis? Well, we know why they need this basis, because... They think of knowledge as justified true belief. And without a foundation on which they can build the edifice of their knowledge, then they don't feel justified in believing any of the rest of it. But you shouldn't be believing any of it anyway. You should just regard it as the best knowledge you have for solving your problems at any given time, the best set of explanations that you have. Belief is superfluous to the project. You can have your beliefs if you like, but what's the point in really, truly believing this stuff? You can move throughout the world and make progress and make your life better and all of that stuff without believing anything. You just think Newton's theory of gravity. It's okay? strictly false. No one should believe it. So you're not justified in thinking it true because it's not true. It's false, demonstrably so. Yet it counts as knowledge. It's something that people know it can solve their problems. It persists over time because it's so useful. It's the thing that once instantiated tends to cause itself to remain so. Why? Because people find it useful for solving problems. And that's what knowledge is. The information that is useful, the information that persists, the information that is resilient in Chiara Marleto's terminology. But of course Descartes, like others, wants the knowledge to be certain in some way, shape or form, to be true and for us to know it as being true. And he would say that, well, the reason why I think therefore I am, you can understand it clearly and distinctly as true, is because there's a guarantor there, namely God who is all good. And of course, he had his ontological argument for God amongst others. It's the same as St. Anselm's, this idea that if you can imagine a being more perfect than every other being, Which you can do, just try it. Can you imagine the possibility of a being more perfect than every other being? You can, can't you? I mean, I can right now. Well, if you can imagine a being more perfect than every other being, then the very concept of perfection, the very concept of perfection entails existence. Why? Because if this being that you can imagine, the most perfect of all, more perfect than anything else, didn't exist then it would have an imperfection it wouldn't be as perfect as things that actually do exist like regular human beings walking around regular human beings walking around are imperfect in some way but you can imagine something more perfect than that and so therefore that being must exist right because otherwise it would lack the thing namely existence that we have but you're already imagining something better than us so this is the ontological argument. <laughs> this is Descartes' version of the ontological argument, which has a whole lot of problems. Okay, here's, here's, a simple, uh, here's a simple counterclaim to that problem. You can imagine the most perfect cup of coffee as well. <laughs> Does that entail that the most perfect cup of coffee exists out there in some abstract realm? Presumably not. And repeat for every other object, okay? It doesn't just have to be being, <laughs> I should just put a caveat here. God may or may not exist, but this is not an argument that one should endorse for uh, organizing their life around a particular religion based on this argument. But, you know, the classic philosophers, they did this. Descartes did this. And he needed, he needed an argument. He needed a logical proof for God so that he could have the rest of his philosophy be a deductive system of a kind. They love this kind of thing. They're all aping what was going on with the ancient Greeks and with Euclid. They thought, well, mathematics is perfect, so we need our philosophy to resemble that. Spinoza did something similar. Leibniz was a mathematician half of the time and a philosopher half of the time. And so his philosophy was always very mathematical in style as well. It was very deductive, less, less explanatory, more here are the axioms that no one can doubt and here are the conclusions that necessarily follow, even if you find them astonishing, perhaps. Okay, let's go back to Popper. So he's just talked about how Descartes had an optimistic epistemology based upon this thing called the veracitus Dei. And Dei is, of course, God. And God is the thing that guarantees that we understand truth when we see it. He goes on to say, quote, In Bacon, we have a similar doctrine. It might be described as the doctrine of the veracitus naturae, the truthfulness of nature. Nature is an open book. He who reads it with a pure mind cannot misread it. Only if his mind is poisoned by prejudice can he fall into error. This last remark shows that the doctrine that truth is manifest creates the need to explain falsehood. Knowledge, the possession of truth, need not be explained. But how can we ever fall into error if truth is manifest? That is Brilliant. That's really, really insightful that Popper is pointing this out. One of the first, as far as I'm aware, to point out this kind of thing, because it was just uncontroversial to the ancients and to the classics, the classic philosophers of the 17th and 18th century, of the Renaissance, of the Enlightenment, who were saying, well, knowledge is just is truth, in a sense. We're just learning the truth when we do mathematics, when we do science, when we do philosophy. We're just learning the truth. And it's 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 no huge mystery because, hey, we're just using our senses or we're using our reason. And both of these things are inerrant in some way. OK, uncontroversial. But then you've got this problem of, you know, how do you explain people disagreeing and people in ignorance and people falling into error and all this sort of stuff? Well, so Popper goes on. How can we just said, but how can we ever fall into error if truth is manifest? He goes on, quote. The answer is through our own sinful refusal to see the manifest truth or because our minds harbour prejudices inculcated by education and tradition or other evil influences which have perverted our originally pure and innocent minds. Ignorance may be the work of powers conspiring to keep us in ignorance to poison our minds by filling them with falsehood and to blind our eyes so they cannot see the manifest truth. Such prejudices and such powers, then, are sources of ignorance." Well, there we go. So why are people ignorant? Well, because we've got prejudices inculcated by education and tradition or or our sinful refusal to see the manifest truth. So we've got this religious notion that, well, we're just evil and we're just refusing to acknowledge the truth. Now, you get this kind of in Ayn Rand. You get this in her in objectivist philosophy, the notion of evasion. You're evading reality. You're evading truth. Now, there might be some truth in that. But it isn't a good explanation of why it is that people are ignorant, much less why people can uh, actually gain knowledge via imperfect senses and so forth. And the religious people say, well, you're being sinful in some way. There's one thing that Popper leaves out there, I would say. So he's mentioned, well, we've got these prejudices inculcated by education and tradition. And we inherit this today. You know, you, you read stuff by, let's say modern rationalists like Steven Pinker, and he will say that. He will say, well, we've got biases, don't we? We've all got these psychological biases that maybe tradition has given us, maybe our education has given us, or what's Popper left out? Ah, the genetics, the genetic biases that we're born with and we probably can't do anything about because it's there, baked into our DNA in some way. So we're born sinful because of our evil DNA (laughs) is causing us to be violent or racist or name your prejudice. It's there in the DNA in some way, shape, or form. We're never told where. <laughs> We're never told exactly where on the genome these genes for these biases are, but they're there. They're there. That's the evolutionary psychology. And you know that's a, that's a rock solid foundation. After all, look at all the physical features that you have. They're there in the genome somewhere. And the genome is the thing that codes for your brain. And, well, the brain is the mind. And so, therefore, of course, you know, anything that goes wrong in the DNA and the coding for the mind is going to lead to prejudice and imperfection and an incapacity, of course, to understand reality. You know, ultimately speaking, we're all stuck in the middle world because our mind has evolved only to understand human-sized and human-speed things. <laughs> is all part of the bias that we inherit. So, as Popper says there, ignorance may be the work of powers conspiring to keep us in ignorance, to poison our minds by filling them with falsehood. And, and what I would say there, you could add to that, one of that source of ignorance is our genetics. Our genetics are just filling up our minds. There's genes filling up our minds with prejudices and falsehoods, blinding us so we cannot see the manifest truth. <laughs> So that's the modern incantation. So we think we escape, you know, the, the so-called silliness of the ancients. Oh, those ignorant ancients who didn't understand that, that we're, not, we're not sinful. There's no such thing as sin and evil and that kind of thing. We're We're smart, modern people now, scientifically minded. We don't believe in being born with sin. No, 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 we've escaped from that. We just believe that the genes are the things that cause us ignorance and we're stuck being evil people because the DNA confers upon us all evil tendencies. <laughs> it's not much of a difference I think. Mean. <laughs> You're replacing our fallen nature's due to some religious or spiritual failing with well, our fallen nature's due to some genetic failing. <laughs> Okay, let's keep going. Popper goes on to say, quote, The conspiracy theory of ignorance is fairly well known in its Marxian form as the conspiracy of a capitalist press that perverts and suppresses truth and fills the workers' minds with false ideologies. Prominent among these, of course, are the doctrines of religion. It is surprising to find how unoriginal this Marxist theory is, end quote. So Popper says there that it's surprising. It's surprising to find how unoriginal this Marxist idea is. Now, of course, Popper did have, does have, great respect for Marx as a thinker. He just doesn't think Marxism is a scientific theory, as Marx insisted it was, and his followers insisted that it was. And many people grant, you know, Marx as being a great thinker. You know, he spends much of his time praising the virtues of capitalism. He just doesn't think that capitalism ultimately ultimately can save everyone from poverty okay so he he makes some missteps and so then he falls into well therefore you know we need social control and all this sort of stuff but i don't know how surprising it is like marxism is a religion to some extent without you know the god bits he takes out the god but he keeps the rest of everything else well that's not just the god bits perhaps the good bits <laughs> would be nearer the mark religion without the good bits you know he keeps all the collectivism Okay, he, he turns that into a political ideology. So you've got the collectivism of religion becoming the collectivism of a political ideology. And of course you have collective punishment. You have sacrifice and altruism for some greater good is all there. So never mind the individual. Okay, the individual should be suppressed in some way, subservient to the, the group and to the greater good and all this sort of stuff. So um, this is the way in which Marxism and religion are, are very closely aligned in certain ways. Okay, and different in other ways, but you know. Many people have observed Many people have observed, and there's one thing that the objectivists actually get right, that that Marxist theory, it, it really is kind of Christian in a sense. There's a, there's a lot of the morality is Christian, the way in which social organization works seems like it's Christian. You know, it talks about egalitarianism, but ultimately, you know, you kind of need leaders there to organise stuff. And when they actually get in power and they have power, things go wrong, all this sort of thing. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go on with Popper. So he's just said, it is surprising to find how unoriginal this Marxist theory is. The wicked and fraudulent priest who keeps the people in ignorance was a stock figure of the 18th century and, I'm afraid, one of the inspirations of liberalism. It can be traced back to the Protestant belief in the conspiracy of the Roman Church and also to the beliefs of those dissenters who held similar views about the established church. Elsewhere, I have traced the prehistory of this belief back to Plato's uncle Critias. End quote. Let's go to what he said about Plato's Uncle Critias in The Open Society and Its Enemies. Um, Because, well, that book itself is just brilliant. You know, certainly well worth reading, but it's just so big. It's it's a mountain to climb. I don't know if on on Topcast, I could ever quite um, do it justice. But certainly here's an opportunity to just read a a few parts of The Open Society and Its Enemies. And it's in Chapter 8, Popper is referring to himself. And Chapter 8 is called... The Philosopher King. And there's some absolute gems here. And I just want to read the very beginning of chapter 8. And he begins with a quote from Plato. And Plato says, quote, And the state will erect monuments to commemorate them, and sacrifices will be offered to them as demigods, as men who are blessed by grace and godlike. End quote from Plato. Let's pick it up from where Popper writes in The Open Society. Quote, The contrast between the Platonic and the Socratic creed is even greater than I have shown so far. Plato, I have said, followed Socrates in his definition of the philosopher. Whom do you call true philosophers? Those who love truth, we read in the Republic. But he himself is not quite truthful when he makes this statement. He does not really believe it, for he bluntly declares in other places that it is one of the royal privileges of the sovereign to make full use of lies and deceit. Quote from Plato. It is the business of the rulers of the city, if it is anybody's, to tell lies, deceiving both its enemies and its own citizens for the benefit of the city, and no one else must touch this privilege. End quote. Now, isn't that disgusting? (laughs) Isn't that awful? And don't you... Feel as if at some times that politicians today and politicians historically have made full use of something like that. They think they're doing the right thing by lying to the citizenry. They think it's for the benefit of the city, the benefit of the citizens in order to lie. How many of them have read Plato? I know some have, but (laughs) certainly they follow in this idea. You do get this sense at times from many of them that they think they're the philosopher kings. They have the divine right in some respect. Okay, so they wouldn't put it in those words, of course. But there are many people who seem to have matured with the idea that they were born to rule in some way. They're the right person to be in charge. They can set things right. They can think better than others. They can think for others. They'll make the place better. They understand the truth. Uh, the rest of us plebeians, we don't. Okay? We need to do what they say because they will put society on the right guide rails in order to make everything better. And if you listen, if you listen to some modern philosophers <laughs> on this point, you know, during the Brexit debate, we saw this, the, the collapse of certain parts of the intellectual community who seem to be offering arguments basically like this, that we need the intelligentsia, we need experts, we need to be ruled by people who understand science, perhaps philosophy, but they need to understand science, they need to be well-educated, which is a terrifying thing. What they're arguing for is philosopher kings. Okay, so they might get elected. There might be elections to get them in place. But the point is, what they really want up there is not the citizen. They want the elite the elite are part of the citizenry, but it would be a strange world in which to live, where you needed to have some sort of examination in order to become a leader. But this is actually what people are arguing. Some people, some very intelligent you know, popularizers of science and philosophy and that kind of thing, today argue we should have an examination before you're allowed to vote. Before you're allowed to vote. Much less run for office. Okay, but this is all this is all in the style of Plato. There are the learned people. And the learned people are the ones who, by rights, should be ruling over the rest of us because they have the best ideas. They are able to avoid the errors that the uneducated plebeians will make. Okay, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? It sounds reasonable. But this is the truth is manifest tyranny. And it's anti-fallibilist, much less anti-democratic, of course. The whole idea that for having leaders of any kind is, well, it's the best system that we've got. Because we can't think of anything better. You need something to organise things. And so why not have this system where, well, at least you can remove them without violence once they've done the wrong thing, okay? Because we have to expect error. We have to expect things to go wrong in society. And when someone has caused them to go wrong or a policy has caused things to go wrong to restrict progress in some way, to uh, cause violent conflict, well, let's get rid of that politician and or policy. That's what democracy is. So we can vote people out because the other systems, the anarchic systems, the tyrannical systems, the authoritarian systems—they were—they've been tried, as Winston Churchill says. Uh, Democracy is bad, but it's better than all of those others that have been tried from time to time, like those ones. But let me go down to where Popper actually mentions Plato's uncle Critias, who's the guy he credits with. This notion that the the reason why we're ignorant is because we're being kept in ignorance by some conspiracy. So I'm going to read, a, a not a super lengthy section, but, you know, something substantial here. It's section two of chapter eight, and, and Popper says, quote, Plato introduces his myth of blood and soil with the blunt admission that it is a fraud. Well then, says the Socrates of the Republic, could we perhaps fabricate one of those very handy lies, which indeed we mentioned just recently? With the help of one single lordly lie, we may, if we are lucky, persuade even the rulers themselves. But at any rate, the rest of the city, end quote, from Socrates via Plato as appearing in Popper. What is this myth of blood and soil? Okay, so the myth of blood and soil has been used historically um, by many different leaders, notably by the Nazis, of course, to say that there is some inherent tie between where you're born and the soil so you have some special connection to where you're born by virtue of the fact that you were born there and your ancestors in particular were born there this introduces the idea of racial disparity between people you belong to where you trace your heritage a despicable idea this notion that i as a caucasian person who lives in australia have some special claim on, let's say, where my ancestors were in England, that I should be able to go over to England and and to lay claim to the land on this argument. It's a bizarre and strange and, of course, racist argument. But sadly, it's, it's still used even today. But notably, it was, of course, used by... Hitler and saying the Germans have a special right to Germany and so therefore these immigrants they, they, don't, they don't belong here this is the myth of blood and soil and, and so Plato is arguing well you know this is one of these lies that maybe you need maybe you need this in a kingdom in order to justify why you're keeping out other people you know and you you have you have your citizens have special rights in this particular city popper goes on to say about this quote it is interesting to note the use of the term persuade (laughs) because he's just said that um, this lie this lie that there's a special connection between blood your race and soil the place where you live um, uh, that this lie can persuade the leaders themselves and perhaps the rest of the city popper says quote to persuade somebody to believe a lie means more precisely to mislead or to hoax him and it would be more in tune with the frank cynicism of the passage, to translate, we may, if we are lucky, hoax even the rulers themselves. But Plato uses the term persuasion very frequently, and its occurrence here throws some light on other passages. It may be taken as a warning that in similar passages, he may have propaganda lies in his mind, more especially where he advocates that the statesman should rule by means of both persuasion and force, end quote. And this is why, you know, because uh, I've read Plato. It's, it's extremely dry, and you just think, well, this is all clearly false. You know, people take him very seriously, don't they? Plato's Republic is read and taken very seriously. It's a very influential, but it contains this sort of dreck, you know, this, this notion that, you know, you need the strong man ruling, you need the smart people ruling, because... He didn't think the mob could rule. He thought democracy was about answering the question of who should rule. And you can't have the citizens rule. You can't just have the mob rule. And of course, you can't have the mob rule. You can't just have the the majority rule over to take away the rights of the minority. But this is the whole point of democracy. It's not there to answer the question about who should rule. It's about being able to remove whoever's ruling without force and without violence. This is the problem that Popper solved but Plato didn't get that so Plato argues for a certain kind of tyranny okay he argues for the the philosopher king but it's still a tyrant ultimately and that person should rule by force in some ways in some cases so i'm skipping a part and then uh, and and Popper goes on to explain that part of the myth this myth of blood and soil is the myth of racialism he says quote quoting Plato God has put gold into those who are capable of ruling, silver into the auxiliaries, and iron and copper into the peasants and the other producing classes, end quote. Popper comments on this. These metals are hereditary. They are racial characteristics. In this passage, in which Plato hesitatingly first introduces his racialism, he allows for the possibility that children may be born with an admixture of another metal than those of their parents. And it must be admitted here that he announces the following rule. If in one of the lower classes, quote, children are born with an admixture of gold and silver, they shall be appointed guardians and auxiliaries, end quote. Popper goes on. But this concession is rescinded in later passages of the Republic, especially in the story of the fall of man and the number, partially quoted in chapter 5 above. From this passage we may learn that any admixture of one of the base metals must be excluded from the higher classes. The possibility of admixtures and corresponding changes in status, therefore, only means that nobly born but degenerate children may be pushed down, and not that any of the base born may be lifted up, end quote. And so he goes on. So, Uh, Plato's a racist, (laughs) Plato's saying you're born, or a classist at least, you're born into a particular class, you're born into the ruling class, and so you've got lots of money, and you deserve that money by the mere fact that you've been born there, and if you're born into the elite, the silver, well then you deserve to be there and have all the rights and privileges that you've been born with, but if you're a peasant and you've just been born with copper and iron, well, your lot is, you're destined, you're destined to just be a, a laborer, working for everyone else, okay? You have, you have no say in the direction in which society takes. But let me, let, me, let me jump to the point where Popper is crediting Plato's uncle as being the originator of this idea that we should lie to the populace. We can explain ignorance, we can explain ignorance among people because of some great deception, some great conspiracy, on the part of leaders or someone else, Popper writes, Quote, In fact, Plato's attitude towards religion, as revealed by his inspired lie, is practically identical with that of Critias, his beloved uncle, the brilliant leader of the 30 tyrants who established an inglorious blood regime in Athens after the Peloponnesian War. Critias, a poet, was the first to glorify propaganda lies whose invention he described in forceful verses, eulogising the wise and cunning man who fabricated religion in order to persuade the people, i.e. to threaten them into submission. And he quotes Critias, who wrote, Then came, it seems, that wise and cunning man, the first inventor of the fear of the gods. He framed a tale, a most alluring doctrine, concealing truth by veils of lying law. He told of the abode of awful gods, up in revolving vaults, whence thunder roars and lightning's fearful flashes blind the eye. He thus encircled men by bonds of fear, surrounding them by gods in fair abodes. He charmed them by his spells and daunted them, and lawlessness turned into law and order." end quote. In Critias's view, religion is nothing but the lordly lie of a great and clever statesman. Plato's views are strikingly similar, both in the introduction of the myth in the Republic, where he bluntly admits that the myth is a lie, and in the laws, where he says that the installation of rites and of gods is a matter for a great thinker. But is this the whole truth about Plato's religious attitude? Was he nothing but an opportunist in this field? And was the very different spirit of his earlier works merely Socratic? There is, of course, no way of deciding this question with certainty, though I feel intuitively that there may sometimes be a more genuine religious feeling expressed even in the later works, end quote. So this is the idea, this is this is the, the, the genesis, I suppose, of ideas that ignorance comes to us via some great conspiracy and perhaps some of the greatest ignorance that we have, including ignorance of superstitious type stuff. You know, people are blinded by believing in silly religious ideas, let's say, only because, only because some higher power, earthly higher power an authority, the priest or the leader, something like that, is actively conspiring to deceive the rest of the people who, if only they weren't being deceived, would see the truth plainly enough, Okay, because the truth is manifest. So the only way to keep that truth hidden is by lying to people about what in fact they're seeing. Okay, so leaving behind the open society and going back again to, to what, I'm origi- what I was originally reading from on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance, Popper says, after having just talked about that passage that I've read there, quote, This curious belief in a conspiracy is the almost inevitable consequence of the optimistic belief that truth and therefore goodness must prevail. If only truth is given a fair chance, let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worst in a free, open encounter. And that's from the Areopagatica, which is Milton's, John Milton's work. And Popper says of this, So when Milton's truth was put to the worst, the necessary inference was that the encounter had not been free and open. If the manifest truth does not prevail, it must have been maliciously suppressed. End quote. So, Milton wrote this work, this *Areopagitica*. He was arguing against censorship. He was arguing against censorship. So one of the very earliest writers on liberal ideas, and so this is all the way back in 1644. So, so really the beginnings of these ideas that you know the the populace is entitled to know stuff. We don't need this uh, priestly or kingly aristocratic class telling us what the truth is. Uh, We people can come to learn stuff themselves. There doesn't need to be a filter between reality and the people, namely this priesthood or whatever you want to call it. This this other layer of people, the educated class, don't need to be between us and learning stuff. And so Milton wrote about this. But Milton, rather naively, he, he sort of thought, well, if you just have the truth out there and it's allowed to fight with falsehood, then the truth naturally will out. Okay, eventually, the truth must come out on top. This can generally be the case. It can generally be the case, but it doesn't have to necessarily be the case, is the point. Necessarily be the case, is the point. And by the way, you know, there's a lot more ways to be wrong than to be right. And so we should expect, of course, following Popper, that there is misconception. In every single thing we know, every single thing we know contains also misconceptions. So ultimately, it's not the truth anyway. So the truth won't will out at all. It won't will out at all. So as good as Milton was, you know, all of these ideas, you know, that we talk about from the classics, they they contain some seed of truth that allows, you know, new ideas to flourish, but you never get to the final truth. They just contain something worth building upon and worth taking further without any of them being a solid, perfect foundation, because all of them contain some kind of misconception. It's more like a filtering process, okay, discarding the errors and, and, and retaining what might be useful and true you don't know exactly you can't you can't state exactly what is true you just know that this particular idea because it works it's worth preserving but that's not to say that it's finally true and so what pop has just said there is that well milton had this idea that the truth will win out and why because manifest truth has to prevail the only way it can't be is if it's being maliciously suppressed he says Popper goes on to say, quote, one can see that an attitude of tolerance which is based upon an optimistic faith in the victory of truth may be easily shaken, for it is liable to turn into a conspiracy theory which would be hard to reconcile with an attitude of tolerance, end quote. So what is he saying there? So he's saying that if you think that truth will out and it doesn't, then the only thing that you can conclude is there, a consp- there is a conspiracy, there's an active conspiracy by bad people keeping the truth from us, which is incompatible with an attitude of tolerance. Why? Well, because if you've got this conspiracy actively hiding the truth from people, those people are bad. So you can't possibly tolerate them. You can't tolerate these people who know the truth but are hiding it from you. So this is a problem for liberalism, right? On the one hand, it's a good idea to say, hey, look... Everyone should be allowed to read all the books, Okay, We shouldn't have censorship, Okay, People should be allowed to have copies of whatever book they like. People should write whatever they like. People should be allowed to have access to newspapers and learn to read and all this sort of stuff. We shouldn't have censorship, especially not government censorship. So that's a good thing. And why? Why should we? Because, well, the truth will out, as Milton said. The truth will out. So this is a reason why we shouldn't have censorship of stuff. It's better to have a battle of ideas, and, you know, the, and see who wins. Well, Popper's saying, yeah, that, that's all very good. That's all very good so far in the sense that, yes, you should have the battle of ideas. He agrees with that liberal attitude. Absolutely. But what he's also implying here, or what he's concluding is that, but it's not necessarily the case that the truth is going to win out Okay, that's, that's not a foregone conclusion because there's infinite ignorance in the world. but of course the people who think that manifest that the truth must win out, must win out have to then explain why it doesn't in some circumstances. And so what they say is because the truth is manifest and therefore must will out, the only explanation for when the truth doesn't win is the great conspiracy, the great evil. And if there is the great conspiracy, there's the great evil. Then you want to take up arms against those people because they're actively deceiving the world, the citizens, you know, your neighbors, your family, and so they're keeping the the manifest truth from you. This is not compatible with tolerance. Okay, Popper is saying, well, there's a better way. Ultimately, he's saying that there's a better way that you can have this battle of ideas, but you have to recognize that everyone's going to make errors. You're going to make errors. People are going to make errors in trying to interpret what the best idea is and often come to the wrong conclusion. But it's still better to have the battle of ideas, right? It's still better to have the battle of ideas. There is no better system than to have the free exchange of ideas, not because you are guaranteed of getting the truth, but because it's the only means of error correction, we might say, in modern parlance. Okay, just read a little more here. Uh, I've barely gotten through one section. (laughs) But this is good. It's good stuff, as you can see. He goes on to say, quote, Popper's saying, I do not assert that there was never a grain of truth in this conspiracy theory, but in the main it was a myth, just as the theory of manifest truth from which it grew was a myth. For the simple truth is that truth is often hard to come by, and once found, it may be easily lost again. Erroneous beliefs may have an astonishing power to survive, for thousands of years in defiance of experience and without the aid of any conspiracy. The history of science, and especially of medicine, could furnish us with a number of good examples. One example is, indeed, the general conspiracy theory itself. I mean, the erroneous view that whenever something evil happens, it must be due to the evil will of an evil power. Various forms of this view have survived down to our own day, thus the optimistic epistemology of Bacon and Descartes cannot be true. Yet perhaps the strangest thing in this story is that this false epistemology was the major inspiration of an intellectual and moral revolution without parallel in history. End quote. Now, Popper's about to go on with just what I think is a next-to-breathtaking summary of despite the fact that Bacon and Descartes didn't get things ultimately right, that theirs, their, as Enlightenment thinkers, were an escape from. So much authoritarian nonsense and led to this revolution of enlightenment thinking in the history of ideas. So I want to take time to really read through this and unpack what they're saying. And I just want to try and impress upon the listener the power of a passage like this, which I don't find many parallels (laughs) in the work of other philosophers, especially other modern philosophers of the 20th century. There's nothing this inspiring. Until you get to David Deutsch. So Popper's going to begin this beautiful passage by talking about the optimistic epistemology of Bacon and Descartes. Now, what was that? Well, the optimistic epistemology of Bacon was that we could observe the facts of reality, okay? Observation was the thing that allowed us to come to certain knowledge of a kind. This is the empiricist doctrine, okay? This is what we inherit from the Enlightenment British thinkers in the form of Bacon. Descartes, the continental thinker, who thought that clear and distinct ideas, our reason, was able to give us truth in some way, deliver us the truth, the final truth, because our rational faculties would not allow us to err. So what does Popper say about these two great thinkers and what did they lay the foundations of, or the beginnings of a particular movement, a revolution, an enlightenment style of thinking? Let's read what Popper says. A, A passage, as I say, that I find unparalleled amongst so many other modern philosophers, contemporaries of Popper, much less people that came later. Until David Deutsch, Popper wrote, quote, Thus the optimistic epistemology of Bacon and Descartes cannot be true. Yet perhaps the strangest thing in this story is that this false epistemology was the major inspiration of an intellectual and moral revolution without parallel in history. It encouraged men to think for themselves. It gave them hope that through knowledge they might free themselves and others from servitude and misery. It made modern science possible. It became the basis of the fight against censorship and the suppression of free thought. It became the basis of the non-conformist conscience, of individualism and of a new sense of man's dignity, of a demand for universal education and of a new dream of a free society. It made men feel responsible for themselves and for others and eager to improve not only their own condition but also of their fellow men, it is a case of a bad idea inspiring many good ones, end quote. Again, as I say, speaking of unparalleled, that's unparalleled. That's beautiful. This idea that you don't need a certainly true, perfect foundation of an idea in order to spawn all of these other movements for progress. Progress can happen because you can take what is true within an idea, although you might not be able to articulate it, and use it in order to solve problems elsewhere. So these ideas of Bacon and Descartes, yes, we get from Bacon the idea that observation, that our senses provide us with something It's important to use our senses, to use observation in things like science, to decide between the theories we guess. Yes, so Bacon was the first one to really emphasize this notion of empiricism. And as Popper says, he's an empiricist of a kind, just not that kind. He just thinks that observations are important. They're also theory-laden. And Descartes, the great rationalist, the continental rationalist, who said, reason is the way in which we can get to the truth. Well, not quite, but reason is absolutely indispensable to the project of creating knowledge. And together you take what is good about these two, blend them together, and you get this Popperian view. And also, all of this other great stuff that he's just mentioned there. The basis of the fight against censorship, the sense of individualism and man's dignity, the dream of a free society. So that comes from Bacon and Descartes, who ultimately, their ideas ultimately were false, but they contained within them the seeds for progress and for the rest of the Enlightenment that followed. And further, for the concept of objective knowledge that Popper has gifted to us and which David Deutsch has now taken even further. I think that's a wonderful way to end things for today. I actually only got through, what, one part? This was part five. So I've got a feeling that this particular series is going to go on longer than I thought. But no matter, and you know, (laughs) as I've said before, all the way back to episode one, one of the reasons that I do talk cast is for my own amusement, and if other people happen to find this at all interesting, then that's a a bonus. Well, for now, until next time, bye-bye.